Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Uh, in our last parish in Sydney, there was a hospital uh, in the parish, and I was often a visitor to parishioners in that hospital. I noticed early on that uh, parking was always at a premium, but outside the main entrance to the hospital, there were three parking spots with a big sign that said, uh, reserved for doctors only. I never saw anyone park in there, so I thought, well, I will park in there. And if someone stops me and said, hey, you can't park there, that's for doctors only, I will say, I am a doctor. I'm a doctor of the soul. I'm a physician to the eternal. And all those years, I parked there and no one ever stopped me. I thought it was a very good excuse, but I never had to use it. But of course, a pastor is a soul specialist, a doctor to the soul, a physician to the eternal, and every pastor, and you would know, the important place that the book of Psalms has in our soul health. Uh, it's the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. It takes us through all the emotional experiences of life. Martin Luther, the German reformer, categorized Psalms, laments, thanksgivings, songs of praise. But he said of this Psalm, Psalm 32 on page 5555, he said, this is a Psalm of the Apostle Paul. Now let's see why that's the case. Notice that Psalm 32 really is a diagnosis and a prescription for our spiritual health. See how it starts, first word, blessed, verse one. And the last words, verse 11, be glad and rejoice. Blessed, be glad and rejoice, and yet it's a Psalm all about sin. And it's saying therefore that right dealing with sin can be a source of blessing. Sin does not have to have the last destructive word. But notice that diagnosis is the key to prescription. I don't argue with my doctor when he gives me a diagnosis if I may not like the diagnosis. It's foolish to ignore proper diagnosis because I do not therefore get proper prescription. Diagnosis is the key to right prescription. And the first step as we approach Psalm 32 is to know that I, you, we are sinners. You may not like that, but that is what God says about us, and it's foolish to turn our backs on that. 
Notice in verses 1 to 5, if you have it there, it starts with double blessed. Blessed, blessed. Truly blessed is the forgiven person. You easily overlook forgiveness as a great blessing of the Christian life. But it is a truly blessed blessing. And notice here that the psalmist, David, does not use any weasel words. He calls a spade a spade. Look at verse 1. He talks about transgressions, a deliberate, willful act, cutting across a forbidden boundary. That's a transgression. Sin, verse 1. A falling short, the arrow is on line, but it falls short. And then in verse 2, he uses the word another, distinct word, iniquity. It's an accounting term that our iniquities will not show up, your iniquities will not show up on your account, but they will be debited elsewhere. So here, if you like, in two verses in the Bible, we have a picture of the totality of sin. It is transgression. It is sin and it is iniquity. It's a willful cutting across. It is falling short and it is drifting off the path. But notice God's dealing with it. Uh, notice uh, it is a weight-lifted transgression, forgiven, a weight-lifted. Uh, sin is covered, verse 1. It is like a bandage, a wound which is healed. And iniquity is that it will not be debited to you, but it will be debited elsewhere. The totality of sin and God's dealing with sin, a weight-lifted, healing applied, debited elsewhere. Now, one of our old pastors on one occasion was flying from San Francisco in the United States back to Washington, D.C. He had sitting next to him a young man who had just brought his first son, his parents' first grandson from Washington to visit the grandparents in San Francisco. He got talking to this man. Who do you work for in Washington, D.C.? I work for the Justice Department. What section do you work in the Justice Department? The Nazi Search Unit. This was a few years ago, but not that long. The Nazi search unit. You still find Nazis? Yes, we were, back then, still finding Nazis. Uh, what response do you get when you go and expose them? It is reported to me that we find universal relief from everyone. At last, the guilt can be dealt with. At last, it's going to come to me what I deserve. You see, guilt is a terrible thing. But isn't it an incredible thing that the older we get, we can look back on our life and think of the terrible things we have done, yet the God who has a perfect memory says that I will put those things as far as the east is from the west, an eternal difference, and I will forget them. Guilt can be dealt with. Look at David's testimony here in verses 3 and 4. He says, when I kept silent, when I bottled up my sin, I felt I was wasting away, I was groaning, I was heavy, I was dried up in the heat of summer. What's, what's David's experience here? We don't know what his sin was. But could it have been his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah? And it was that period between David did those dreadful acts and when the prophet Nathan came to him and said, you are the man. And it was in that period that David covered everything up. And he said, I was groaning. I was wasting away. It was a heavy experience when I was covering over my sin. And the longest verse, look at it there in verse 5, comes in verse 5. And three big words are used. I acknowledged, verse 5. I did not cover up. I will confess. Notice the direct speech. 
I, 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 and you, God, forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we're all at nature a bit of a hypochondriac. So that when you get a headache or a sore throat, you think that it may well indicate a deeper, uh, more substantial problem. Imagine going to your pastor and saying something like this, God feels far away. When I pray, the prayers seem to hit the ceiling. I've no joy in reading my Bible anymore. And I have no anticipation Saturday night that Sunday mornings, church family, I don't anticipate it at all. And before you look for any deeper subterranean issue, why don't you come with David here? I was groaning. There was great dryness in my life. It was arid. And then I acknowledged my sin. I confessed. I came openly before God and acknowledged that I am a sinner and this is the sin that I've done. Uh, in Australia, we have an ABC, which is the equivalent of your BBC. And recently, the ABC ran a program called Encounter with God. We watched out of interest, but were disappointed. There was no mention of repentance. There was no mention of confession. And there was no mention at all of sin, for that matter. There cannot be an encounter with God apart from repentance and confession of sin. And David says here in verse 5 that he acknowledged his sin and he knew, therefore, that he was forgiven because of the acknowledgement of and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What was the basis upon which God forgave David's sin? Well, it was probably the Jewish sacrificial system, the animal sacrifice. But, of course, David knew that he needed an ultimate perfect sacrifice in the future. And the great problem with the animal sacrifice is that it was not loving, it was not voluntary and it was not effective. And yet the Lord Jesus comes along and in love lives the perfect life, voluntarily lays his life down for us out of love. And so that is an effective sacrifice for sin. And the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is anticipating, pointing forward, foreshadowing that. It's interesting that if you went into the Jewish temple or the Jewish tabernacle and you look around at the furniture, there is one item of furniture you will not find there. You will not find a chair for the priest to sit on. As though he's done his work and now he can relax, now he can collapse his weight into the chair because the day's done and my work's done. No way. You keep standing. You keep on duty because your work is never done. And yet the writer of the Hebrews on a number of occasions, Jesus uh, says Jesus sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because he had done a complete work for sin, a loving, a voluntary, and an effective sacrifice for sin. And that's what David is foreshadowing in this psalm. But it's available for us now. Don't be reluctant. Deal with sin. Jesus has done that which is necessary and you can be forgiven. You can have the weight lifted. You can have the healing balm applied. It can happen to you and you can have your debt taken away and debited elsewhere. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Verses 6 to 11. David says, so be open and pray, because today is the day of opportunity. 
And again, in direct speech, look at verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And the word salah is placed there. It, it, it just simply probably means a word like rest. And then he goes on in verses 8 and 9, again in direct speech, God and me, the confessor, God's speech, I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you. Don't stubbornly resist such blessing. Don't resist the diagnosis because the prescription sends us to God and to Christ. Now, friends, I have a fascination with poetry, a bit unusual for an Aussie bloke to have a fascination with poetry, but I like poetry. And uh, if I've ever been in a poetry class, the poetry teacher generally tells me that if the poet says it once, it's important. But if the poet says it twice, well, it's a bit more important. But if he says it three times, it is really emphatic. And I want you to notice the number. When you go home, just read through this psalm and underline the number of times things are repeated three times. Look at the opening verses. Verses 1 and 2. Your transgressions forgiven, sin covered, iniquity not debited. Look in the middle, verse 7. You are a hiding place. You are a preserver for me. You are my deliverer. Look at verse 10 at the end. A person who trusts in the Lord is described as such. The person who trusts in the Lord is the person who is righteous and is the person who is upright in heart. And then the psalmist finishes in verse 11. Be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Therefore, here is a very important poem. Here is a threefold repetition of these matters because they are important matters and you need to deal with them. Do you remember that silent movie where the man is sitting in front of the fire? He has a pipe in his mouth. He has his newspaper. And as he reads the newspaper, it says, Lion escapes the zoo. And he pats his dog. And as he's patting his dog, he's realizing that this is not his dog. It has much more the feel of the mane of a lion. And he realizes he's got a problem. Dear friends, we have a problem. And our problem is God. He is pure and holy, and we must face him. And it takes God to solve the God problem. And God solves the God problem. Salah, rest, verse 4. Salah, rest, verse 5. Salah, rest, verse 7. Do you know that rest? There is no rest in ignoring sin, or as what most people do these days, they redefine sin. It won't go away simply because our politicians redefine it. Our redef redefinition does not change the reality of sin. To confess sin is to agree with God about sin. And one of the best ways I know of doing that is grabbing a hold of the general confession and praying it often. Or simply saying to God, I'm sorry, please, thank you. I'm sorry that I've ignored your way. I'm sorry that I have actually sinned. I've fallen short and deliberately cut across. Please have mercy and forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus, the loving, voluntary, effective sacrifice for sin. And you will find a loving and forgiving God. Salah. Rest. What's this got to do with Paul? Uh, please come over with me now to Romans chapter 3. And I think this is on about page 1134. 
Now, we're going to start at Romans 3. Here's your question. If the weight of transgression is to be lifted, who will lift it? If the bandage is applied to my sin, who will apply it? And if my sin is not debited, where can it be debited? When verse 23 of Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it further goes on in verse 25 and says that in God's dealing with us, he is showing his justice, his righteousness, verse 25. And it repeats that in verse 26, he's showing his righteousness. How can God forgive us when he knows that we are sinners? How can God forgive us and make us right with him? How can that demonstrate God's justice? Or is God a crooked judge? Is God corrupt? Is God, does God just click his fingers and say, go away, sin? So how does this work? Come with me to verse 24. Underline verse 24 if you've got your own Bible. I think that verse 24 is the most foundational verse in the whole Bible. Because verse 24 tells us, with a legal term, that God declares in the right those who are sinners and are justified. That simply means that God declares that you are in the right with him. On what basis? Look at verse 24. By grace as a gift. Contrary to my deserving, I do not merit it. I do not earn it. But by grace as a gift, God declares that I'm in the right with him. Based on what? Look at the next part of the verse. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus is a business term. I'm set free by the payment of a price. What is the price? It is a perfect life laid down in death in a loving, voluntary, and effective way. And that sets me free from the bondage of sin and pride. It is a redemptive death. And Paul goes on in verse 25 and says, whom God Jesus put forward, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, that Jesus on the cross absorbs the wrath of God, which was due to our sin, to my sin, to your sin, Jesus takes it on our behalf. That's all that propitiation means. It's an incredible truth. And this, dear friends, is to be received. It's not automatically applied. It is to be received by faith, by trust, by relying, by leaning your weight on Jesus. It is here that I can find my transgression, my sin, and iniquity dealt with. You know the old illustration, here I am weighed down by sin. Here is Jesus without any sin. God takes my sin and lays it to the account of Jesus, and he dies to pay the penalty of that sin. Where does that leave me? God takes the perfect life of Jesus, and he credits that to our account, and he sees us as standing in the perfect life of Christ. Well, what's this got to do with Romans 4? Well, Paul is anticipating in Romans 4, he's anticipating the person who says, hey, this is something new. We've not heard this before. Uh, the Apostle Paul's just dreamt this up. No, Paul says, this was the experience of Abraham. This is the way God has always set people right with himself, not by works, but through faith. Look at verse 3. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And if you want more proof of this, I didn't dream this up. Rather, David refers to it. Look at verse 6. David speaks also of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven 
and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Incredible that my sin is not counted against me, but it is laid to the account of the Lord Jesus. The weight is lifted by his redemptive death. You need to tell yourself that again and again, as I do. The healing bandage is applied. The debit is made to his account. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Let that sink in when your conscience starts accusing you that you are a person who stands complete and forgiven in Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dear friends, here's how you can break your pastor's heart. I would go to the deathbed of a lady who'd been in the church many years. I would take her hand and she would look at me and say, oh, Mr. Cook, I don't know that I've done enough. None of us can do enough. But God has done enough. God has satisfied himself completely on our behalf in his son, the Lord Jesus. The gospel is momentously good news. It is not demanding news. On our family gravestone out there in Sydney are the words of that great Bonner hymn. Listen to them. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Upon another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Jesus Christ, they're all. I didn't live the life. I didn't die the death. But he did. I stake my whole eternity. Unforgiven, uncovered, unimputed, you pay. What a precarious place to be in. How wonderful that you are here today to listen to these great words. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Agree with God about your sin. Ask for mercy. Thank the Holy Spirit. That the, thank Jesus that the Holy Spirit lives in you, enabling you to live as Jesus' as Lord. In our past church, one of the senior elders, one of the senior wardens. His parents were converted in China before World War II by American missionaries. And he said, those missionaries did a great job. They taught my parents to pray and end every prayer in exactly the same way. And I never heard my mother or father pray without ending their prayer in exactly the same way. And this is how they prayed. And we pray with thanksgiving in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ trusting in his merits alone. Amen. Diagnosis, prescription, come to Christ, his merits alone, by grace through faith. And what does David say? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here is rest, dear friends. Seller, indeed. Do you know that rest today? Let's pray. We thank you, 
our Heavenly Father, for all that our Lord Jesus has done. According to your plan, we thank you that his sacrifice was loving, voluntary, and effective on our behalf, according to your plan. We thank you that when that last day comes, we will know that we stand in him, clothed in righteousness alone, faultless to stand before your throne. We thank you for these great truths, for they are reality, a real diagnosis and a real prescription. And we pray with thanksgiving in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his merits alone. Amen.